You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today we've got Jeremy Deal from JDP Capital, who's based in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, could you tell the audience a little about your background, now your journey towards becoming a value investor and how you actually got started in value investing? Yeah, so I'm from San Diego, California. And um, um, I was have been interested in investing since um, um, I kind of, I came to value investing, like a lot of people read you know, about Buffett, but I was also interested in, in, in private equity and, and private company investing as well as stocks, uh, going back a really long time, but being from Southern California, um, it's not very, it's, it's not an industry that's very prolific. So I didn't know anybody in the industry and, uh, the only people in finance around me were either in corporate finance or they were in sales. So I wasn't able to. I wasn't able to find, it was hard for me to find people to meet um, that were in the, in the business. So I ultimately just went to one of the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meetings and uh, my eyes were opened and I met because, because I was able to meet a lot of like-minded people. And um, I came back really knowing that um, someday I wanted to manage money and that um, whether I bought public or private companies, I wanted to invest money for a living. Um, And so um, in after after graduating college, I um, looked for a job in, in, in finance, but it was difficult. I wanted to stay in San Diego. Uh, the dot-com boom had already had busted and we were in a recession in the early 2000s. Um, and so the, the opportunity that, that presented itself was to go work for a entrepreneur who had sold his business to Honeywell and the entrepreneur manufactured um, components for home security equipment. So he was in electronics. It was an engineering and design, electronics engineering and design company. Very different from what I was interested in um, or thought that I would ever be interested in, but it was, it was a job and I really got along with, with this, with this now CEO of this division of Honeywell and um, the team. And I told them I was interested in investing and they, they convinced me to to work there and learn as much about business as I as I could. And then as, I, as that started, I realized that I could become a better investor if I had some real business experience. And um, just I just ended up getting really excited about the business experience that I was gaining um, there, and decided to sort of find a way to use that um, in investing. So that's um, that's how that was kind of my first job, I guess. What are your thoughts on the coronavirus crisis right now? And where do you think we're headed from here? Well, um, you know, being in Europe, I moved to Europe three years ago. Um, be just, um, just, it started out as a, as just an experiment. Um, I spent some of my life abroad and was always interested in, in experiencing Europe. We had some investors in Europe as well. And, um, so 
I ended up uh, staying after I came for a year, ended up staying. Um, and so going through living here prior to the coronavirus and being here through it and, and really not traveling at all throughout it has, has created my experience. I've sort of been a product of my experience as I think most people have been. So in areas where maybe like New York, where, you, where things were hit really hard, I think it's a very different experience um, from somewhere maybe where there was hardly any outbreak at all, like in the Faroe Islands or something. So um, being in Amsterdam, um, it wasn't as, it didn't feel as bad. Of course, we were nervous and scared and, and we have rules and, and we were encouraged to shelter in place, but it wasn't mandated. Uh, we could still leave. We could still walk around. We could, and the grocery stores were open. There was, a, there was never a panic for food. There were never lines for toilet paper. People behave very rationally. People follow the rules. Um, and as I was telling you before we started, I, I actually continued going to work after the first week um, because my office is a short walk and I work mostly alone. Um, and it was just a nice break to get out of the house. But it, where, it wasn't nearly as dramatic here, I would say, as it probably was for in, in a lot of parts of the world. Um, the capacity and the local hospitals uh, were always, always plentiful. Um, just checking in with friends who are local doctors that, you know, hey, this is, you know, we're kind of, it, it, it's fine. I mean, we, we can handle the capacity. Other parts of the country were uh, full and there were stories of, of corona patients uh, near the German border that had to actually go to Germany to hospitals because of overflow. But where, where we are in, in, in Amsterdam, it didn't feel to me, at least in my world, like, um, you know, as crazy as it probably was in other places. So my experience, um, although I, I understand and recognize how, what it, what it you know, how, how it's changed the world and, and how, how fearful it is and, and how it's just as fearful and how um, important it is to recognize the, you know, how bad it is and, and um, what it means. But it, I personally didn't have the same ultra negative um, experience as maybe others. So uh, when I look at the world, I guess I see it through that lens, which is probably, um, I don't know, it's both positive and negative. There's positive sides to uh, because I didn't go through and I didn't have any friends that had that got that got it and um, my life was relatively normal the whole time. Um, it was a lot more difficult for me to accept the potential implications economically of the coronavirus than I think it would have been if I had lived in New York or somewhere like LA where where people were harder hit. So uh so, you know, millions of people are out of work and, you know, spending is, uh, you know, spending has actually gone down though today retail, sell, uh, retail sales were up. So uh, what are your yeah. thoughts on the V-shaped recovery that everyone's betting on? The, right now? Um, yeah. So, you know, there, the, there are companies that are clearly benefiting from, from this. They're, the, the virus has moved forward transitions that were already happening in business. Um, and because when, when the economy started to shrink, um, it just fast forwarded those, like I said. So it's, um, there are trends that were happening, whether it's the trend from linear radio streaming to, to or linear to streaming radio or broadcast TV to streaming, things like that are obvious, but there's a, a lot of other smaller niche 
um, transitions that were happening and they were just happening at a slower pace because we were in a boom time in the economy. And so people had the luxury to change slower than they probably should have. Um, and when budgets shrink and when people scramble, um, it, 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 it shows weakness in, in old models that are outdated and it shows strength in, in new models that have, um, that they're creating the most efficiency. So there, there are, there are have and have nots and that, that group that there's a big division between the have and have nots. And so companies that, um, are structurally able to benefit from this, um, the market has rewarded, um, them for that. And the market has also looked forward and said, um, in a lot of cases they, they've priced in, um, not only organic growth that would have happened anyway for those companies, but additional growth at the expense of, of other companies that they're, that, you know, that, that are losing, losing out. So some of the really big companies are, are obvious, um, like Amazon, for example, is winning on two fronts. It's winning because it has the scale and the size and was in the right place at the right time to benefit from it. But despite the low, you know, despite unemployment uh, rising as fast as it has, it has not stopped it from growing because it's growing at the expense of, of brick and mortar retail. So um, I think that's where the market and a lot of investors have missed out because they are trying to um, they're trying to understand how the market quote unquote is up and the economy as a broad based from a broad based perspective is, is in decline. And what people don't often think about is you do not need a, an overly strong macro overlay in order for every single company to be growing and profitable at the same time, just because you have a very strong economy does not mean that every company that there's not going to be any company failures. So it's, if you think about it on a business to business, business by business case, um, even during, you know, the darkest economic times of the last recession, you would find that one store shop or that one restaurant um, that was always crowded with a line wrapped around it. Maybe it's a Chinese food place or something, and maybe it's a pizza place that's really popular in your neighborhood. And it, you wouldn't necessarily say, well, why are those people standing in line to buy pizza at that particular place on the corner? Like the economy's in shambles. Well, because there's not always a direct correlation between the macro numbers and every single individual company. And when you look at smaller companies, especially, so maybe in mid cap or smaller, it's even easier to see how there are many companies that could continue to grow despite record unemployment and despite whatever happens, despite what happens in the, um, in the economy. So um, you can absolutely have su successful businesses that are growing um, uh, organically and at the expense of others and, and legitimately worth more post COVID than pre COVID. And that can be, that can completely fly in the face of the macro. Um, at the same time, there are many, many, many companies um, that are that have not uh, beat the the S and P 500 this year. There are many companies that are down 20 to 50 percent that have not recovered, um, and are down sometimes 90 percent plus from the peak uh, three or four months ago. So, um, for all the rhetoric of the financial news, um, they they only seem to focus on the companies that are up and not the companies that are down. And um, the last time I checked, and don't quote me on this, but 
the last time I looked, I did a screen of U.S. publicly traded companies of 100 million market cap or higher. Um, only about a third of them, of the total market of you know 55 or six six thousand public companies, had kept up or beat the S and P 500. So um, it's it's not true or fair to say that the the rising tide has lifted all boats. JDP Capital is a global equity fund. So where in the world are you presently seeing opportunity right now and why? Well, there's, um, so there's five core or, well, okay. So mostly we're US centric um, fund um, because it's easier for us to do research for US based companies. Um, and and the, um, the typical company we look at or interested in has a, as a um, addressable market that is much bigger than the company itself. And that addressable market is global in nature. Um, and so instead of looking at geographies, we look at individual companies that um, have a global opportunity. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's a lot of growth and um, I mean, there's generally growth and, and, emerging markets and whatnot, but there's also great pockets of growth in developed countries as well. So um, try not to look at it on just a purely geography basis, but a company specific or um, sometimes sector, sector based opportunity. You say that your strategy has a special situations overlay. So can yeah. you expand more on that? So what exactly that means? Yeah, the, about so the um, we started the fund, did mostly special situations, um, which were companies that you could probably characterize as price dislocators, where um, maybe more net nets or, you know, we launched the fund in 2011. There were still dozens of net nets uh, left over from the financial crisis. So um, not having a, a, as much experience as I do today, it was easy back then just to really rely on pricing and screening um, to make decisions. And that, that led us to buying a lot of special situations. So companies that we could dig in and, and we, they were selling for maybe five cents or 10 cents on the dollar technically as a, related to what they potentially would sell for in a private transaction or according to peer comps in the market um, and there was an idea that you know we could figure out something that the market was missing and then they, the price ultimately would mean revert um, and that was the strategy in the very early days um, but and it worked um, in that run-up in that 2011 when the market started coming back and people realized there was not a double dip coming and there was not a recession a double dip recession coming um, in late 2011, 2012, and those those value stocks, so to speak, worked. But because they were lower quality and name, they were lower quality in nature. We were forced to sell them. So um, the, you didn't, I didn't realize at the time that that actually created more problems than it was really worth. And we were miss outing, miss, missing out on the companies that were compounding. So when you buy a low quality business, um, you're playing a little bit of a hot potato game. Um, hoping that somebody else is willing to pay, you know, maybe a retail price for it, but there's really no reason for somebody to pay that. Um, uh, a lot of those companies are trading cheap for a reason, generally because they can't grow or they're slowly shrinking. 
and just because you find it and you screen and you can see that historically they made whatever returns on invested capital or have some attractive matrix, financial matrix that you've read um, about signals that it's positive, um, does not mean that that's actually what the company's worth. Um, because you're, let's face it, those distressed companies, unless you're taking them private and you're going to personally control the cash flows and then get paid from your investors on an IRR basis. So the, as cash flow is kicked out, um, it, you can't, it's very difficult to compete. Um, it's very difficult to compete when you have to buy a passive stake in a company um, then and hope that they can reinvest the capital or find a place to reinvest the capital at a rate of return that will at least keep up with the best companies in the world that are inside of the benchmark that that we that we compete with, which is the S and P 500. So the the original uh, that's a long-winded way of saying we did a lot of special sits in the beginning. It was most mostly all we owned. Um, then there was a period where I realized we're not going to be able to keep up with the S&P if we have to constantly trade um, every, you know, a company just because it goes from, you know, this, you know, single digit uh, multiple to this, you know, from five, five X to 10 X or something. Um, that wasn't the way that um, I think that I wanted to earn a return or build a fund. And so there was a pivot to, looking at companies that could reinvest capital and had a very at a very high rate of return and and had a really long runway to grow um, and thus be able to compete with the s p 500 which has the you know some of the highest quality the highest quality companies in the world so with that said um there was always this you know because of the background and in, in distress and special sets um you still have an eye for it there's still an interest in it and you're still sort of once you start in that that business it's you you know you have enough experience in it you still every now and then find something that's just so good you you um you want to own it so instead of having a portfolio of those companies every now and then um we find one or two that are just incredible situations to special situations but um we don't talk about them because we don't want to confuse people with what the core strategy is which is um, companies that can continue compounding and growing um, for long, long periods of time. So on the special situations front, we generally have one to two positions. Um, and today we limit those positions to a maximum of 10% of the fund as the basket. Um, and uh, we do not spend a lot of time looking for them, actually spend no time at all looking for them. It's more of, hey, if one falls in our lap, we look at it or potentially buy it. Um, but it's again, not a core focus of the fund. Do you do like merger arbitrage and restructurings or not? No, no. Yeah. It's uh, the return on the return on brain damage as Bill Ackman says is, uh, is, is not worth it uh, for a small fund. You know, the, when you're competing against the S and P 500, it really, um, limits your options of, of what you can buy from the perspective of you you have to buy really high quality companies because top 50 companies in the S&P that really drive all of its return or the, the uh, most of its return um, are high quality they're reinvesting cash at very high very high rates or incrementally higher rates of return they don't require um, they don't require um, outside capital for the most part 
especially the biggest companies. And so when that's the, if that's the index you're going to compete with, which is where, what we're doing, um, it's very difficult to buy anything that it, you have to ask yourself every time you look at a company, can this, that can the free cash flow of XYZ Corp that I'm looking at, is that going to outpace um, the biggest companies in the market? So um, it, it, is the runway equal or longer than the biggest companies in the market? Your competition, just like in any other business, you have to ask yourself, what is my value add here? And so if, if my investors can just own the S&P 500, they don't necessarily need me. Now, we're not going to beat the S&P every year, but over, over a rolling period of time, whether it's you know, what, you know, two years, three years, five years, we do need to beat it on a net basis. And don't use leverage, don't use options. And so it's, again, circling back to that, it's, you know, when the top companies in the S&P are so high quality, um, it's hard to do merger ARB and it's hard to do distress um, and be able to compound growth at a higher rate of return than those really high quality companies. What sectors are you looking at right now? So like, you know, who can survive and thrive, you know, as you put it? Now, yeah, yeah. So there, there's kind of so our uh, the filter we look at everything through. We call it the the survivor and thriver uh, company characteristics. So there are companies that um, there, there's four main characteristics. So it's a business model that is adaptable and relevant in tomorrow's economy. Company has to have pricing power protected by a growing competitive advantage. Um, capital allocation and balance sheet strategy that support the company's moat. Um, and then significant alignment of interest between management and, and uh, minority stockholders. So um, it's a tall order for companies to have all four of those characteristics because you can look at any one of those four and say, well, I can see how there's companies that with a business model that is uh, relevant in tomorrow's economy, but it doesn't necessarily have capital allocation and balance sheet strategy that supports its moat. Um, because let's say it's a high growth company, but it continuously needs to raise capital in the market. So it's, it's diluting itself or um, the moat is not being um, created right. by a capital allocation. It's being, it's being uh, weakened by the capital allocation strategy, for example. So we, the, these four characteristics, it's, it makes for a very high bar. Um, and every now and then, you know, we may find one, one or two companies a year to, to invest in. Um, right now we've got eight positions. So, um, as far as sectors and things we're looking at, uh, right now I'm we're really focused on companies that I was saying earlier can grow at the expense of maybe old economy companies and also have on their own an organic growth, um, because they're creating more efficiency. And one of the sectors that, that we like a lot and, and we're pretty heavily exposed to um, is, is connected TV. So specifically within connected TV, what's called, um, there's, there's SVOD, which is stream, like streaming services that you pay a subscription for. And then there's AVOD, so advertising, advertising supported streaming. So we're, we're focused right now on on the future of advertise, uh, uh, streaming TV that's supported by by um, advertising. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there, um, and it's in the very very early innings. That sector. 
um, we've moved away from the, the cable bundle on the traditional cable bundle. And right now the sector is the whole TV industry, the pay TV industry is going through almost like a rebundling um, and it will benefit um, certain aggregators that have the ability to either aggregate all the streaming, all potential streaming apps um, that are being created and that already exist and that are, that are constantly being created. Um, and or you know whoever can tie them all together and understand um, the advertising you know crack the code behind a really highly effective advertising behind that. What does your investment process look like? You know your process from how you source ideas to making decision whether you want to buy or not. So uh, you know what does that look like? Well, there's definitely not a, a rinse and repeat um, process. Um, a lot of it is around studying um, just business in general. And you're constantly reading about um, business of all kinds. So it's magazines, it's, it's a lot of podcasts, um, it's um, you know, videos, it's going to conferences, it's is being interested and fascinated in business. And, and when you do that every day, you're gonna learn about sectors that are changing, that are going through transition. So we're generally looking to start with a business or a, or a sector that's undergoing a lot of transition because it has the potential to create um, um, not necessarily a mispriced stock, but um, a company with significant unrealized earning, long-term earning potential. So there's that, and then um, you have to be interested in a sector or a company enough to, to really dive deep and study it. Um, because studying a company today or making an investment today is much more about studying the industry and the business and the long-term opportunity for that business than it is just studying past income statements and balance sheets. I mean, that's the financial parts part of it is, is definitely uh, key, but um, I wouldn't say our investment process um, just focuses on reading past financial statements or something um, like maybe it would have in the 1960s or 1970s. So um, when we find a sector that, that really grabs our attention, I say us because I, I have a, um, a business partner um, when we find something that we're interested in or I find something that I'm interested in, um, just start studying it. And if there's public companies in the space, we just look up those companies and um, start reading about, reading about them or listen, you know, start with maybe where the company comes from and the founder, or the people in charge and how they got there. And then if it continues to be interesting, um, based on the culture, what we can tell about the culture of the business and the founders, um, just kind of keep going from there. But um, the whole time of, of looking, the whole time we're looking at a company, we're continuously putting it back through the survivor and thriver filter. So it um, doesn't take too long to see that a company misses one of these four characteristics. And um, if you're looking at high growth companies, they all have this potential of being, you know, a company that's adaptable and relevant in tomorrow's economy, but it's very quickly um, misses either on the capital allocation piece or a pricing power that, that of some kind is protected by a growing competitive advantage. So, um, 
and in that case we would we would move on but every now and then um we find those companies that seem to have all of those characteristics um and the next overlay would be to really start digging deep into the sector um and it's just we have an expert expert network uh, service that that we pay for to start I mean, getting access to people in the industry to suppliers to customers people that have done business with the company people that work for the company um, and I would say um, that research doesn't ever really end um, especially if we buy the company we are continuously studying that industry and studying the competitors um, and continuously focusing on the survivor and thriver elements so um, I guess in a nutshell, the process uh, starts with looking for an exciting industry and exciting business, making sure it passes the financial smell test and then re-engaging with understanding the, the broader opportunity in the next five years that the market may not be able to discount correctly. Yeah, you mentioned that you used, the, uh, you used four filters to uh, assess whether it's a survive and thrive kind of business. So what are the more specific metrics that you use when you assess businesses? Well, um, as far as maybe like financial matrix? Yeah. I think if you're looking at a company and you have, and you have a five or 10 year horizon, um, especially an asset light business or a modern business, uh, things like book value are completely immaterial um, and a waste of time. But things that do matter are the free cash flow to the firm. So you want to make sure, at least we like to make sure that the company or have a, have a, you know, we need to understand, you know, what the, what the earnings power of the company is. And that is not a gap, gap based earnings power. Um, you know, like I say, if the, I always say, that if the company has nothing better to do with the cash than to report after-tax earnings, then it's probably not that interesting for us. Um, because we want companies that have a very long runway to reinvest 105% of the money they earn back into the business at an incrementally higher rate of return. And our job as analysts is to peel back the onion of the company and um, and, and recreate that cash flow to understand, A, does a company have enough, make enough money on its own to continue reinvesting at that rate? Um, because just screening for it would never tell you that. And then um, and if we think that it does, um, I think that's, that's probably the most important, that's the more, most important thing. Because what you don't want is the company to come out and say, we have these great growth plans and we're going to take advantage of these changes happening, these transi this transition happening in a sector or within our own business, but then not be able to fund it without raising capital in the market or taking on debt. Uh, with companies that are growing, they generally don't take on traditional debt they generally try to pump their stock price up and then sell stock to fund growth. And so those are situations we want to avoid. We want to buy companies that are past that venture type of um, capital uh, requirement where they're self, self, um, self financing so they can support themselves. Um, and so the work, the financial, the traditional financial work would be much more around the predictability of the of the free cash flow and the levers that the company has to either um, 
to conserve cash if they if they had an opportunity to save for something or to um, you know just to to dial it up um, we want to make sure that they can afford their growth plans that we think that they're that they've that they've stated um, and then the balance sheet stuff you know obviously that ties into you know cash flow a little bit we want to make sure they have a combination of cash flow and balance sheet cash to support their growth plans but we also want to make sure that they don't have too much cash for or they just aren't sitting around with cash for no reason um, which could be a drag on valuation long term um, because just because a company has some cash and it doesn't necessarily mean it's a margin of safety because um, you don't necessarily know what they're doing you want to have a we want to have an understanding of what their plans are for capital allocation um, and so the companies that we're looking at don't don't we don't really have that traditional debt um, matrix at least in the in the in the core portfolio and on the special situation side it's it's all different we own something now that's a litigation uh, we bought it for about 15% of the cash on the balance sheet enterprise value so a negative enterprise value so substantially more cash in the market cap and and no net debt um, but it's a more of a litigation it's more litigation risk and we did a bunch of work around the litigation uh, the, the the different potential outcomes and it was very mispriced and so we bought it um, and we've also owned things in the special situation side that have debt that, that we're kind of betting on a restructuring of the debt or whatnot in, in the short term but that does a really small you know we need five or ten x upside in a, in a shorter period of time poten potential in a shorter period of time so that's really that would be more of traditional kind of financial work. But as I said earlier, that's not part of our core um, investing um, strategy anymore. So um, yeah, uh, growth um, oriented things, you wanna make sure they can pay for it without diluting shareholders. Um, it's probably the, the most important piece. Was there like a minimum ROE or ROC that you look for before investing? Well, in an asset light business, um, I think you want infinite on incremental capital. And um, you, you don't wanna be able to measure it as, as you would in a traditional business. So if you can measure it in a traditional business, it's probably not, you know, it, it's probably too mature of a business. Um, maybe not, maybe that's overstating it. Maybe that's not necessarily always the case, but. Generally speaking, when you can kind of go through value line and look at a company that is has this very high traditional returns on invested capital and meets all these screens, it's generally a more mature business that is run out of um, opportunities to reinvest their capital at a high rate of return. And that's why you see those, you see those financial matrix like that. Um, some of the most attractive businesses often have um, kind of show, you know, show negative book value. Um, like a Moody's, for example, and that's a, that's an older, more traditional business, but it's an asset light business. So um, return on invested capital, as so far, in, insofar as measured um, by as a percentage of of equity on the balance sheet, um, no, it's it's not. We 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 need to have very 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 high rate. We're looking for for um, incremental growth that is compounding the company's um, moat and 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 compounding the earning the longer term earning potential of the business, but maybe more difficult, you know, for the traditional um, financial person to understand because they're more focused on the past. 
So you just completely disregard like PE and PB ratios? Well, gap accounting is really great for traditional older economy, like asset heavy businesses and mature businesses. So um, I think they're great matrix if those are the kinds of businesses you invest in. So if you invest in, I don't know, a company like Kraft Heinz or something, like a, an, old, an older food company that um, has sort of reached its peak and now it's a GDP plus, plus two or three, uh, per, you know, two or three point growth type of business, then those, those ratios are really important. But you're not gonna beat the market buying Kraft Heinz. Um, you're just not. Uh, because there's so many more bigger, better companies that just can grow faster, have much, much higher quality earning streams, cash flow streams, uh, balance sheets, everything. So when you look at those old economy companies, yeah, you need those matrixes. They're mature and they're old and gap accounting plays a much more important role. But when you're buying something um, because you want to hold it for five years or 10 years and it, that, that company needs to beat the S&P 500 over that period and the top 50 companies in the S&P are s such incredible competitors, it's no longer good enough to be able to rely on the same screens that you would in an old economy business that's mature because you just won't. Um, you won't get anywhere and it's, and it does, and those old, those kind of traditional matrix also will only tell you a story about an old mature business. It won't tell you a story about the companies of tomorrow. But what is it that allows you to identify these superior compounding businesses? Like, is it like, you, you need know, to just... develop a, yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's a framework, you know, finance people are always desperate to put everything into a box and, and, and create a formula where they can rinse and repeat and, and potentially put a, a, a mathematical algorithm around it or something um, and have these really shortcut type, type mindsets, you know, develop these really just quick, quick math and, and be able to make a quick, quick decision. But, um, you know, the world, it's not that easy anymore. Um, you need to, you need to, the matrix that I think you need to have grounding and you need to have absolutely matrix in mind. You need to understand business models, but, but I come at it more, I've learned how to come at investing more from the perspective of understanding what's happening in the business and the uniqueness of that business. And it doesn't necessarily need to be something that I've seen other places. Um, you know, the, one of the more famous stories has been Netflix that is talked about quite often, um, how, you know, if you, if you took a look at it from a traditional, you know, traditional financial perspective five years ago, it looked really scary and dangerous because they had negative free cash flow. They were spending so much money on content. Um, but then they were able to change that, you know, their, their plan was spend, spend, spend with this idea of building up the, the content. And then once they got critical mass, they were able to uh, spread that out over not only a larger base, but um, they, they, the, the base was so, the content library was so big that the stuff that they had made in the past continues to be used and watched um, by the new incoming people. So there's this amazing compounding return 
that you get um, as, as time goes on. So the idea of burning all that cash is a short term, is something that happens short term um, in exchange for kind of the, the, the long term competitive advantage. They built their moat, they, they, they were able to go cash flow negative for a long time to build their moat because once they own that content, they don't have to pay any rights. They don't have to pay, um, you know, kind of rights to anybody. They completely own it. And so something that was produced, you know, four or five years ago is still watched today by people. And so um, it was a combination of building up the, 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 the material and growing the subscriber base. And so there's a really interesting mathematical point where cash flow goes from very, very negative to just exploding up into the right. And so unless you studied the industry and you studied the business in great, great detail, and what I mean by studying the business, I don't mean staring at the, the past income statement in the 10K, um, but I mean getting deep into the strategy of the business, what they're doing, um, their view at the time of what the impact of streaming could be and how it would, how it would impact uh, traditional uh, cable television and the bundle and what Reed Hastings kind of grand plan was. The, you know, these weren't secret. There wasn't secret of what they were doing, but you had to do the work. You had to kind of understand the story and the strategy, what was happening and be able to assess the ability of the team and the competitive position they had to be able to achieve that. You had to be able to look at the competition and say, well, is the competition copying this? Well, at the time they weren't. Um, nobody really believed streaming would amount to anything or would be some would be become the mainstream way that we we consume television or we consume media and and so you had to take a perspective a contrarian a very contrarian perspective that I think value investors have innately but you have to learn how to apply that contrarian um, mindset towards um, business models and towards management teams and, and strategy um, in, a, in a much different way of looking you know at, at, at more of a kind of a from a business perspective more so than just historical financial statements um, and so this is why I think a lot of the traditional investors have missed out on what have been some of the most incredible returns that we may ever have seen um, which now look like amazing businesses and if we could go back in time of course everybody that it says they're like a book value investor would give their right arm to be able to own Amazon 10 years ago, because how would, you know, and their, and their perspective, how would you have ever known? Well, you could have had a view and you just have to try. You have to kind of try to think outside of the, the box because you're not traditional businesses. They don't have traditional assets. And so when you don't have, when you have intangible assets, um, you have to just come up with your own matrix that you can approach them with. Um, and so the first step is to, is to kind of have a strategic matrix. Um, and if, see if you can understand what's going on and, and it makes sense to you, just like you were buying a private business. Hey, is this, is this, do I think this can be successful or not? And you need to start there. Can this be successful? Um, because what happens in, in a lot of these, a lot of people feel there's this margin of safety in the, in the, in some old, you know, looking at past numbers of the past balance sheet or whatever, but we're managing other people's money with the intent to outperform the S and P 500 over a long period of time with no leverage. So that's really the, the opportunity cost is your competition at the end of the day. Um, because if you can't beat the market over a 10 or 15 year period, 
it doesn't matter how much margin of safety there was in the companies you bought. If they never went up and they sat there as dead money for 15 years and the S&P compounded at eight or nine or 10 or 12 or whatever um, over that 15 year period, well, you're just not going to, you know, it, you're just, you haven't, well, you haven't delivered what you promised your investors was you, you, because you, you set out with a, with a goal to try to beat the market. And if you can't do it, um, then you probably won't have a business. So the margin is, you need to think about margin of safety in terms of, yes, you don't want to go bankrupt. That's an obvious, you don't want a company that's going to go bankrupt or something. Obviously that's where we hopefully all just kind of innately know that. Um, and you need to have, um, you, you know, you need to make sure that you're not going to get smoked or whatever by, by just a bankruptcy or something going away tomorrow. But, um, your real competitive advantage needs to be an ability to keep up with or outperform the, the, your, your competition. Um, and you need to be able to find that in every company that you want to invest in, because if you can't find that and identify that, then I don't think that that's being an intelligent investor. So how are you able to avoid these value traps? For example, in the great financial crisis, a lot of European banks look really cheap, but then yeah. if you look at the last 10 years, you know, they've not gone anywhere. So uh, how are you able? To um, yeah, I haven't. I mean, I've made a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of value trap mistakes like everybody. I mean, I can't tell you the number of value trap mistakes I've made. I continue to even, I mean, we're just naturally, it's just the mindset of most people in this business. It's really hard um, to not, get sort of excited about a, a seemingly 10 cent dollar. Um, I avoid them now. I, I don't own, I mean, I, I haven't had it happen in a while, but I went, I mean, it took, it took years before I could really stop avoiding them. Um, and now I think I'm avoiding them, but that doesn't necessarily mean I am, but I believe I'm avoiding them by really focusing on the survivor and thriver characteristics. So companies that we found um, outperform the market over a very long period of time have these four survivor and thriver characteristics to some degree. So if you really ask yourself, if you look at, you, like, let me back up. Um, we started with this study called peak to peak, where we looked at the performance of all companies in the, you know, headquartered in the U S that were over a hundred million in market cap. And we looked at their performance of all the stocks in the market between peaks. So we pretended you bought them at the peak and then held them through the next peak. And so you never sold, you just went on vacation at the absolute peak. And we looked at extreme peaks like the dot-com bust, like the 2009 recession, et cetera. But we assumed that you bought at the peak before those things happened and then held until the world recovered. And we wanted to see which companies really outperformed the market, even in the worst times, even if you had the absolute worst timing. And so the companies that we did this very long study um, and the companies are actually published on my website. You can go to jdpcap.com forward slash survivors and or I'm sorry, it's forward slash peak to peak. Uh, and you can see a list of them now that, that peak, the peak, the last time we updated it was sort of the end of 2019, but it, it goes from October 2007, which was the last big ma major peak um, the beginning of it and or the, the, it was the, the peak before the, the last uh, major, or the, um, the last major recession. 
and then um, th through and held through until the next peak, which ultimately turned out to be February to 2020. But um, at the, for the point of what we have on the website, it ended in November, I think, or October, November of 2019, which isn't far off. So if you look at the numbers that uh, the companies that really outperformed, they they're in all different industries. Um, they don't have necessarily anything on the surface in common. Some of them have debt, some of them don't. Um, some are old companies, some are new companies. So we really spent spent the better part of two years um, looking at the characteristics of the companies that really outperformed and the companies that really underperformed. And we found that the companies that outperformed had these four survivor and thriver characteristics. And the companies that underperformed were had the inverse of these characteristics. Either they missed one of them or the ones that really did poorly didn't, you know, didn't have any of them. But the one thing that the top performers had in common is none of them were, were uh, cheap based on the price at the time. So none of them were mispriced. They were all sometimes were trading for record multiples or record prices, um, peak prices. And one thing about the underperformers that had in common is they generally were cheap then and they continued to be cheap and they never really came out of it. So we wanted to understand that dynamics. So over a really long period of time, price takes care of itself. It doesn't necessarily, or point to saying this is it doesn't necessarily matter. If you've got a long, long-term time horizon and you're trying to capture the, the value of a company's ability to compound, um, you know, the most successful company's ability to compound, it, buying market timing does not play nearly as big of a role as you think. It actually doesn't play a role at all if you zoom out long enough. So whether you bought Nike, you know, the day after the IPO or you bought it 10 years later, doesn't matter. Something like 99% of these companies, you know, over, over some period of time, the value accretes to the public shareholders. And this is, these are billions and billions of dollars. So it, you, you still had an incredible outperformance, whether you bought, you know, uh, during some dip or some peak or whatever. So that so these survivor and thriver characteristics, the reason price isn't necessarily a part of it is because price works itself out. If you have all four of these company characteristics, um, you, you, you'll have the ability to continue to, your, your earnings will be protected long enough for you to maintain um, a certain level of gross margin, return on invested capital, not dilute the shareholders, be aligned with, be aligned, you know, have an alignment of interest between the controlling parties and, and minority. You'll have a company that's, that's um, relevant and adaptable and, you know, kind of tomorrow's economy, you know, all those things sort of take care of itself and allow it to grow. And if you look at every successful company, they have those characteristics. It was, you, you, and, and if you focused on those characteristics initially and looked at, at prices, not an afterthought, but more of an overlay, um, I think that's how you get it right. Because, um, you know, the best performing companies or the best companies in the world are really never cheap. Um, so this idea that cheapness is a margin of safety is very flawed in, in, with modern companies. Um, price does not tell you if a company is safe or not. Um, there's other characteristics that do that. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.